Well, good morning. It's good to see you all again. We are back in our series in Mark. And just a few notes here before I start reading. You may have noticed the microscopic font in the worship guide. Uh, a lot of times in Scripture, we, it's not too hard to sort of take out a relatively small section and we kind of unpack that. There are, however, times when that is to our detriment, and we need to read a larger chunk. And unfortunately, it, depending if you're thinking about the time <laughs> or not, Mark 13 is one of those passages. It, 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 it's, it's more fruitful to read together as a whole. So this will take a little longer. Uh, so bear with, with us this morning at that. Um, secondly, just to orient you again, since we were out of Mark for a week, and uh, this is really getting to the end of Jesus' life. They're in Jerusalem, and you will, you'll hear a couple of things right at the beginning. The disciples are leaving the city proper, and it's, it's helpful to know that the Temple Mount was this huge structure on the east side, you know, here's the city, on the east side of the city. And then there was a valley, the Kidron Valley, that they, would go, that they were going across, and that's where they start this conversation. And then they end up on the Mount of Olives, which is on the other side of that valley. And they can look over and see the whole big temple complex. And that's where most of the conversation happens as they're sitting on Mount of Olives looking over at this enormous complex. So just to kind of orient you in terms of space and what's going on, that's what's happening. But let's dive into it. Mark 13. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pangs. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and, father his, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and put them to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, when, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, 
Pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now, and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from the heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things take place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he comes suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, we definitely need to pray. Father, we know that you speak by your word. And you know that we don't understand your word very well a lot of the time. So give us your spirit that we might hear and give us hearts to respond, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a great essay by Roger Ebert, you know, the film critic, about 2001, A Space Odyssey. If you've ever tried to watch that movie, probably the only Stanley Kubrick movie I would ever talk about from the pulpit. But, the, uh, but it, you know, it's one of the most difficult movies to watch has almost no dialogue. It's intensely difficult to watch, but he talks in that essay about going to the premiere in 1968 and how people started getting up and leaving. At one point, Rock Hudson walks by in the aisle, you know, a famous old actor, uh, saying, well, somebody tell me what this is about, and, and marched out of the film. But he said, for many of those who remained until the end, they had seen one of the greatest films ever made. People were leaving, but those who stayed had seen, you know, cinema magic, right? They had seen a hallmark, a landmark in filmmaking. That doesn't make 2001 easy to understand, but they had seen something great. And I think that that's a little bit like Mark 13. There's all this stuff going on, and we're pretty sure it's important. And if we hang with it, I guarantee you will find important things here. 
but it is hard to understand. It lives, it's, it's, uh, it's apocalyptic. That's the genre that Jesus is teaching in is, is called apocalypse or apocalyptic. That's the Greek word for something being revealed. It's actually the name of the book we call Revelation is the apocalypse. It's the revealing, the thing being revealed. And, and we see the genre, uh, it actually exists outside the Bible in ancient Near Eastern literature and in, in even uh, Jewish sources around this time. There are other books that are kind of written in this style, but it shows up in the Bible a few places in the Old Testament, uh, in a few, of the di- a few different prophets, but most marked in the, basically the last half of Daniel, from Daniel 7 through 12. But it shows up in the New Testament as well. Jesus kind of shifts into this mode here in Mark 13, and it's a noticeable shift. It's part of how you know Jesus is doing something that is stylized, right? Jesus doesn't talk like this exactly most of the time. Uh, of course, the, we know of the whole book of Revelation kind of fits in this. And it's worth noting a few things right off the bat. This will be helpful for understanding this passage. It'll be helpful if you're trying trying to read the book of Revelation, but I just want to highlight a few, as we get going, a few distinctive aspects of apocalyptic literature that will help us out. First, apocalyptic emphasizes spiritual action over human action. So human action tends to kind of fade to the background. What gets highlighted is what God does. And also, by contrast, what Satan and the demonic forces are about as they try to undermine God's work. So, the focus is not on human actors, right? But on divine action. And also by, you know, satanic forces that are at work. So, there's a different focus. Uh, The emphasis then, because it's focused on especially divine action, is on judgment and salvation above anything else. It has a laser focus on those issues. Uh, Third, kind of consistent with that, it builds on biblical symbolism. This is a challenge. Uh, It's one of the reasons this kind of literature is hard to, to read, uh, you know, John Calvin, even famously, didn't write a commentary on the book of Revelation, even though he wrote on almost every other book of the Bible, uh, because he knew it was the hardest thing to unpack. Uh, it, it, that, that poses a challenge for us uh, to understand all that symbolism. It's not just quoting theological ideas, it's connecting symbols. So consistent with all that, fourth, it's it's telling a spiritual history. I'm not saying that doesn't make it true or real, but it's focused, again, on divine action. And it's telling history, a large swath of history. Let's just put it that way. Um, Sometimes apocalyptic will start at the very beginning, at creation, and go all the way to the end. Uh, I don't think Jesus is taking us back to the beginning here, but he is taking us all the way to the end. It also, and this is another tricky part about the history it tells, tends to loop back on itself multiple times. So if you ever read the book of Revelation, for example, it sounds like Judgment Day comes like multiple times. It sounds like Jesus returns multiple times because he does. 
because it continues to loop back on itself to tell the story from a somewhat different angle each time. There's at least one loop back in this story, I think, in Mark 13. And and because it is focused on the way that God sees things, time is compressed or expanded in ways that are not the way we understand time to unfold. Remember what Psalm 90 tells us, what Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3, that a day uh, or a, a thousand years are like a day in God's sight. So God see, because he, God is focused on his works of judgment and redemption, he thinks about time a little differently than we count it. <laughs> and finally, and this is so important to see, apocalyptic and especially apocalyptic literature in the New Testament tells you what to take away from it. This is essential because this kind of thing has gotten used in all sorts of different ways, especially over the 20th century and into the 21st century. I mean, through most of church history, but it tells you what to take away. It does not leave that mysterious. There's lots of things we don't understand about it. Symbolism, and I don't have every answer for everything, but it tells you what to take away. The ethical point is so clear. This, is, this passage is filled with imperatives. What you should do with this. It's everywhere. All that is a long introduction to say that Jesus is thinking about how the, end, how the beginning of the end is about to arrive. And he tells us three things to take from that. Stay warned. Stay wise and stay awake. Stay warned, stay wise, and stay awake. Stay warned. Jesus begins, as we, as we kind of mentioned before I started reading, he's talking about the temple. And the disciples are, you know, they're, they're appreciating the beauty of it. And it was a beautiful building by all accounts. I mean, it was, it was huge and there was so much expense put into it. And they're appreciating that. And Jesus just says in verse two, yeah, not a stone's going to be left on top of another. And, and in fact, I mean, the only thing that is left at all now is the wailing wall that, that's in Jerusalem. Nothing's going to be left of it. And they get to the Mount of Olives and a few of the disciples say, Jesus, okay, um, they're probably, their heads are spinning probably when he says that. And they, and they, they say, well, tell us, what, what should we be looking for? How do we anticipate this happening? And that question about what signs to look for in verses 3 and 4 is, the stim, is kind of the, the stimulus for this whole conversation. And Jesus answers that question by setting the destruction of the temple in a cosmic history, in a much, much broader They get a lot bigger answer than they're thinking they need. They want a checklist, and Jesus says, well, let me just tell you about the history till the end of time. It's pretty much how he answers their question. Uh, They get more than they can expect. And Jesus begins by giving them a couple of warnings. In verses 5 through 8, Jesus tells them, look, the actual thing you want, you're not going to get. Because we want to gauge history based off uh, the actions of certain human leaders. Or we want, to, we want to understand God's work based off 
our kind of political fortunes, based off wars that come or go, based off natural disasters. These are all things he mentions in verses 5 through 8. And Jesus says, none of that is going to give you the signs you want. That's what they want, is a checklist of sort of the the events that they can anticipate that are going to show them that the destruction of the temple is about to come. And Jesus says, you will not see it. You cannot read the signs by following leaders or politics or wars or natural disasters or any other kinds of human actions, human institutions. They will not tell you. So that's warning number one. And warning number two is don't be surprised by suffering. So he goes on to, sit, to talk then about what the church will endure in verses 9 through 13. This sounds a lot like the, the book of Acts, doesn't it? As Jesus is describing being dragged before councils and synagogues and governors and kings and all these different people and having to bear witness. Jesus warns them that, well, he te- he's telling them clearly that the point of the church is to bear witness, but that that bearing witness will be a source of suffering. In fact, he says you'll be hated by all. It's a strong word. It's a call for endurance. But notice something else in there. That the temple, the place where God's Holy Spirit rests, While it will be destroyed, where is it? It's with the disciples. It has gone out to them. There is an important detail in the midst of that that certainly the disciples would have noticed because they didn't think about the Spirit resting on every individual within God's people. That is not the way anybody from the Old Testament would have thought about it. But Jesus starts talking about the Holy Spirit being with everyone, everyone who follows him at least. So the first thing we like to do, though, is chuck all these warnings. The first thing that happens when, when we read this is we think, well, Jesus, tell us all the, th- the checklist of the, th- the world events that we should be able to read. And again, a whole bunch of people have made a cottage industry out of doing this. Over, you know, especially again the last century and a half. There have been lots of people who have done this, made a sort of checklist of world events. You can find all these sorts of timelines that people have made to sync up to different world events. And Jesus tells you that's a fool's errand. It won't work. Because the things to look for are not the human events. That will not tell you how to track God's timing. It simply won't. And I mean, you may not even be trying to think on that kind of cosmic scale. I mean, think about all the times we try to read the signs about what God's doing in our own lives individually. Don't we do this all the time? Uh, I mean, I remember, especially when I was young thinking about like, well, I would pray about something and I'd think, well, okay, God, well, if this is the way things are should be, you know, do this. I'm thinking of all these Old Testament times, you know, where there are signs given 
Not noticing, in fact, that the only time a sign is appropriate is when God actually tells you to ask for a sign. But there it is. You look for signs, right? Uh, I worked with college students for a long time, and every couple years at our retreats, we would have a seminar on, you know, discovering God's will for your life. And it was always full. Everybody wants to know what God is doing with your life, and the truth is that God is never telling you the future of your individual life. He was telling you the end of all things. <laughs> He's not telling you what next week holds, or what next year holds, or what the next decade holds. He's never telling you that. Instead, if you want to know God's will, and I will summarize that I can summarize that seminar really briefly. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's God's will for your life. Right? It's to follow him. To bear witness to him. But we're always reading the signs, aren't we? And this is a good question. Your sense of pessimism or optimism, what is it based in? Is it based on your bank account? Is it based on the last interaction you had with a family member? Is it based on who's in office right now? Who won the last election? Is it based on your sense of whether society is going well or going poorly? Or whether we're making progress or whether we're tearing down what was good? Is that what you base your sense of optimism or pessimism in? Be careful. Be warned. That has nothing to do with God's timing. Instead, we're called to bear witness. This is the task of the church. It is curious that we are so anxious as American Christians because Jesus says, do not be anxious. Instead, follow him and bear witness. And he tells us, Things are going to be hard at times. In fact, you might say, and I think it's consistent with the rest of the New Testament, the normative experience of the church is one of persecution and suffering. That's actually, that's the baseline. And yes, there are times when we don't have it as hard as others, but that's the normative experience. Don't be surprised. Bear witness follow him. That's what we're called to. So he says to stay warned, but he also says to stay wise. And this gets us into the, the kind of harder piece of this, into verse 14. Verse 14 is, is, in a certain way, the kind of linchpin for understanding this whole passage. Because Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be. So if there is one event Jesus kind of pinpoints, it's the abomination of desolation. So that just clears it up for all of us. Right there, right? It's crystal clear exactly what Jesus is talking about. Well, this is a particular, this is a particular reference back to uh, three verses in Daniel. Uh, so one of them is in Daniel 9, verse 27, 
The other two are in 11.31 and 12.11. Chapters 11 and 12 in Daniel are the last of the visions. So it's kind of two, really kind of two visions that, that are referenced here. I, I can't possibly go into all the details of, of those because that will really take us down a rabbit hole. But needless to say, the, this thing that is the abomination of desolation is always considered a linchpin in, the, in, it's in those two visions of Daniel. It is a turning point in God's work of redemption and a turning point for judgment on the world. There's been a lot of people who have offered different explanations of this. Um, Jewish sources tended to think about this as a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes, who was, uh, who was in, in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He was one of the Greek rulers who had followed after Alexander the Great and all that. He had, he had come into the temple when he had taken over Jerusalem and set up an altar to Zeus and sacrificed a pig on it. Uh, not cool. Not good. Definitely qualifies as an abomination, I mean, you know, based on Levitical law. <laughs> uh, other Christian sources have tended to think about this as being something later, something in the future. I actually think it's important to understand exactly what the phrase means, right? An abomination is a specific term in the Bible. It comes right out of Leviticus. It is something that is so unclean it should never be in the temple. Now, it might be an action you do. It might be moral in its category. Or it might be, uh, it might be something about our fallen condition that should never be in the temple. So this is temple language. We've been talking about the temple after all. Right, this abomination is that. And desolation is a description of God leaving the temple desolate. When we talk about the temple, when we talk about desolation, there's one person's presence that we're talking about. It is God's presence. And God has left the building before. And what did he do? He destroyed it. He sent the Babylonians to destroy it. So the desolation we're talking about is the emptying of the temple. And here's where it's important to stop and think for a moment. When does God leave the building? You don't necessarily need to know a lot of specialized history or anything like that to think about this for a moment because it happens in chapter 15. I can tell you specifically, chapter 15, verse 38 because after Jesus breathes his last, we're told that the, the curtain that separated God's presence was torn in two. We know when God left the building. We don't have to have all the specialized knowledge. We know the moment it happened. And of course, we know that, the Obama, we know that Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf from the angle of those who committed it is an abomination. Right? He is the one who was good. He was actually the perfect one. The only, the, he is a, a one of one category, right? Jesus is the one who was perfect. And we know it was Satan's plot. So the one who ought not to be standing where he's standing is Satan, pretty clearly. Because he has taken control in Jerusalem. And it's Satan's plot. We're told Satan entered Judas. Satan thinks this is a good idea. Jesus' crucifixion, from the angle of those who perpetrated it, which is also us, 
is an abomination. It was the murder of the one only innocent person ever. We'll get back to that in a second, but then you can see what follows from that in verses 15 uh, to 23 is a, is a period of tribulation, a time of tribulation that follows it. Uh, Jesus says, you should get out of town. When God leaves the building, don't hang around. Because we know what happens. He's not going to leave it there empty. It will be destroyed. But what follows is this period of tribulation. He uses a term that's kind of loaded, uh, shows up throughout. But what do we see through the rest of the New Testament, right? That this is the description of the life of the church. Is a time of tribulation. It's a time also when false Christs and false prophets arise in verse 22. Well, you know, all throughout the New Testament, there's all these warnings about false teachers. They, they pop up a lot. You know, whether it's Galatians and Paul kind of countering the, uh, you know, Jesus plus something else kind of <laughs> equation that, that uh, had entered in. Paul warns throughout, gosh, in 2 Timothy and Titus, he's warning, and, and a bunch of other places about false teachers, false prophets. This comes up throughout the New Testament. We're warned over and over and over again against it. So what follows then from the abomination of desolation, from Jesus' crucifixion, is a time of tribulation. Until the end. We get to verse 24. Because he calls up Im images from Joel 2, from Isaiah 24, uh, other places as well, right? The end of time, the judgment day, the day that God shows up is always described as being the sun being darkened, the moon being darkened, the stars falling. This sort of cosmic imagery is always associated with it. And then the sun comes riding on the cloud of glory. And this is from Daniel 7. I'm going to spend more time on that Daniel 7 passage uh, later in chapter 14, because Jesus brings it up again in an extremely important scene. But all that is to say that in Daniel 7, which is the moment we get this character called the Son of Man, that title Jesus keeps using about himself, it is a, it is a vision that Daniel receives about Judgment Day, about resurrection, about the triumph of God's people, and this mysterious figure shows up in the middle of it the Son of Man, who's riding on God's glory. That's the end. Jesus is taking us all the way to the end of the story. Well, it's essential then, if you're trying to make sense out of all this, to understand, I think, the bigger picture. And this becomes clear after Jesus' death and resurrection. I'll admit that. Jesus is not giving a ton of detail here. But the way that most people thought in coming out of the Old Testament about, about how world history unfolded was, you know, there was creation and the fall. And then there's this, this present evil age. And then there's a moment when God intervenes, right, with judgment, resurrection, the redemption of his people, finally, fully it's kind of, it's just a straight line, right? 
of different moments. Well, what, what, we start to, what starts to emerge, and I'd say this is pretty clear that it's at work here, even though Jesus doesn't spell it all out, is a different way of thinking about it. Instead, the way that things start to become clearer as the New Testament moves on is that you have this present evil age, which is dealt a decisive blow with Jesus' death and resurrection. And yet, it is not fully removed. It, is not, it hasn't been put to a complete end yet. It is in its death throes. And like any wounded animal... It's dangerous, yeah? But Jesus' death and resurrection is also the beginning of the, of the new creation, which we experience now in part, but isn't fully revealed. And so, we, so what some theologians have called that, this is the overlap of the ages. Right? So there are two truths at work simultaneously. There's the reality of the old evil age and the reality of the new creation and the age of God's kingdom, which are simultaneously overlapped, which means that we have to kind of think in two registers at once. And I think once we start to get that, the rest of the, the, rest of the New Testament starts making a whole lot more sense. Because on the one hand, we can talk about the old evil age and what is at work even still now. And we can also you know, talk about the dangers of it, clearly. But also talk about the realities of the, the kingdom of God breaking in. Of the new heavens and new earth. Of the resurrection itself at work already in us. And those two things can be true at the same time because we live in the overlap of the ages. And this is what Jesus is laying out. The thing that is the abomination... is also the work of redemption. Now, the angle here, let's be clear, is primarily thinking along the lines of the present evil age. That's clearly the, the kind of the, the line that Jesus is teasing out. Boy, that light is killing me. Uh, but of course, we know that he works through the evil. But Jesus isn't confused about the evil of his own crucifixion, right? He will say in the next chapter that it would better, it'd be better for Judas if he had never been born. This is going to be a, an evil action, but he will work it for good. But it does teach us to be wise then. We should be wise about false teachers because they are everywhere. And again, the New Testament picks this up and continues to warn us about it. You know, it, it, you know, there, there have been in the news over the last, you know, several years, various kind of high-profile uh, ministers or, you know, theologians who have fallen into sin. Jesus would say, don't be surprised. Your hope is not in them. Your hope is not in me. I hope I don't do any of those things, but the, your hope is not in anybody who's a teacher, but in Jesus. Because many will come claiming to speak for him. But don't believe it. 
listen to his word. And there's all these other temptations that will arise, right? The tribulation itself will, you know, is an attempt to wrench people away from God. That is what the satanic plot is. Jesus is crystal clear about that. Be wise about that. And again, consistent with what he told us before, recognize that this is a time of tribulation. It is also a time for growth. Don't misunderstand, right? Remember the overlap of the ages. It is also a time to grow. But maybe once we get that overlap of the ages thing a little clearer, we can understand how it is that the Bible talks about uh, afflictions, talks about suffering. And remember Paul in 2 Corinthians says, this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. That it actually turns out that God uses those in his people to change us. However difficult, however challenging, however unpleasant they are to go through, that he uses them to change us in the long run. And remember this, that is how it works with Jesus. Because this thing that was the abomination, Jesus turns into an act of grace. This thing that is the abomination is also the thing that God uses to draw us to himself. This thing that desolates the temple, that, dri- that you know, drives God's presence out of the temple, he actually uses to give his presence to us. God clears out of the building, but he, doesn't, he uses that as an opportunity instead to rest in you, in everyone who follows Jesus. So be wise. Jesus is telling us, be wise. And finally, he says, stay awake. He says, stay awake, like it's in the imperative three times in a row in the last few verses. Stay awake. Stay awake. Not just for the sermon. Stay awake. He says, look, you know, think about a fig tree, right? You know how to, you know how to read the seasons, right? When something starts to grow. Look at that. He says, look to these things that I'm telling you. Now, he's not telling them, again, about a checklist of world events to be thinking through. Instead, he is saying, rather, the things we should be looking for are the abomination and desolation, right? His crucifixion, the spirit heading out, and looking for false teachers, and the opportunity to bear witness, and looking for the persecution of the church. Well, again, that's been going on from the beginning. But these are the signs, that the end of all things has started. It started with his death and his resurrection, and the end is at hand. Now, feel, now it's been 2,000 years, <laughs> which to us seems like a long time. But from God's perspective is also what he is doing to work in us, growth and grace. It's not a short thing for our hearts to be changed. Now, I don't know why God tarries. I don't know why he waits. I don't know what his timetable is. Be warned about anybody who claims to know what his timetable is, right? Jesus says this. Jesus says, 
I don't even know the timetable. Did you pick that up? In verse 32, even the son doesn't know the timetable. And of course, it's not that Jesus, look, I mean, Jesus is divine, right? Like if he wanted access to that information, it's there. It's not like he can't know it. But rather, he is focused on his task. And he is leaving, setting the time to the father. He's not talking about an inability to know. He is talking about his focus on his work. And his willingness to submit to the father's guidance and the timing of it. We live in the beginning. This is why he can say this generation will not pass until all these things come to pass. Because the end does begin. It's literally going to begin in two days. It's about to happen. That generation will not pass away before all these things happen. He doesn't mean the end. He's saying all these signs of what is the beginning of the end. He knows it's coming. Stay awake. Stay awake. Staying awake is hard. (laughs) Staying awake isn't easy. You can't just, if you're trying to stay awake, I mean, I stood a lot of watches in the middle of the night when I was in the Navy. You can't just like sit down somewhere and plan to stay awake. It won't happen. Uh, You will not stay awake because you're not meant to be up all night. Your body's not meant to do that. You have to be active. Even, Even though our waking, our staying awake is, is waiting for something, it is still an active waiting, isn't it? It is about preparing ourselves. This is why, the, again, the, the metaphor that he uses about the master going away and waiting for him to return is helpful. It's clarifying, right? There's things we're doing. Work on the house, as it were, uh, to pre- be prepared for him. There is an active waiting, and you know, it's not really a mystery what it's called. It's called faith, hope, and love. Remember that triad that Paul comes back to over and over and over again? Faith, hope, and love. We're waiting. Uh, I've never given birth, but we have two kids. And, you know, the waiting for, for a kid is active. There's also a lot of sitting there wondering how long is this going to take. And again, that was more significant for my wife than for me. But, the, but there's a lot of stuff to do. Things you can be working on. A lot of them don't have to be done. But they're better to be done. We're waiting. And we're called, to, like I said, to faith, hope, and love. But often the church treats waiting more with fear, anxiety, and disdain. Don't we? I would say that American Christianity often seems to be more characterized by fear, anxiety, and disdain than by faith, hope, and love. Not always. But you can't be around the church for long without recognizing that we're pretty fearful that we're pretty anxious, that we treat others with disdain far too often. But we are called to faith, hope, and love. God has his own timetable. But that doesn't mean the time is useless. 
It's, in fact, it's useful. Paul sets a good example of this in Philippians, right, where he says, he's in jail at the time, and he says, I don't, you know, he actually admits, I don't know if I should kind of long for my death to be with Christ, which at some objective level is better. Or to long to be with you, because there's a task at hand. And Paul's settled conclusion, actually, is to be with them. Because there is something useful to do while we're waiting. We have to stay awake, turn away from anxiety, turn away from fear, from disdain. When we slip into fear, we slip into anxiety, when we slip into disdain, right? At best, this is unwise. At worst, it is actually unfaithfulness. It's actually falling into the satanic plot. To be the kind of people that are not learning to be like Jesus. Loving even our enemies. There is a... When you go in the military, the first, one of the first things you learn are the general orders of a sentry. Um, these are general orders of how you stand any watch. Uh, they are, they're pretty basic. But the very last one is to be especially watchful at night and during the time for challenging. In other words, when you know there's a threat, when you know someone can hide, be especially watchful. And this is what Jesus is telling us. Be watchful. You've got to be warned. You've got to be wise to what the dangers are. And you have to stay awake. Stay awake. Stay warned of the dangers. Stay wise to all the distractions, to all the ways in which we're lured away from faithfulness. But most of all, stay awake because Jesus has won the victory. And he is coming back for you. Let's pray. Father, we need wisdom uh, on how to apply all this. We know we're called to wisdom, but we need your spirit to give it. We know we are warned, but your spirit has to be the one at work to keep us out of danger. And we want to be awake, but it's only your spirit that wakes up the dead soul, that wakes up a dead heart, and calls life out of what was death. So send your spirit, give us strength, give us courage for the task, and most of all, teach us to put our hope in you. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.